a king and we want him now. We want a king and we want him now. We want a king. All right, here we are with Civil Discourse. This is not a safe space episode. I don't even know what. What are we up to? A uh, hundred? Or have we met our... <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome, uh, Dr. Mike, uh, our, my esteemed co-host. And we have back in the studio uh, Peter Aziza with us today. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Uh, visiting from uh, the United Kingdom, London, and uh, Lagos, Nigeria. And we have a special episode today on a very important topic that's dear to, I think, all of our hearts as both participants and administrators of uh, education. Dr. Mike, any thoughts on that topic? Oh, I, I, you know, I always tease that you get me spun up. You can, you can lose a lot of your day getting me talking about education, but we're going to try to stay within the hour. And uh, I I do want to talk about a very specific sub-issue within education. And that is the education of what are called in the industry at-risk youth. And and because we have Peter here in the studio with us, I I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation because Peter brings us not one, but two perspectives, one from the UK where the at-risk youth are largely a Caucasian population uh, on the east. Uh, is it the east end of London, Peter, where they live? Uh, I mean, I suspect they might live everywhere, but yes, there's definitely some over there. Right. And, and then, of course, uh, we're talking about uh, young folks in uh, Africa, uh, specifically in Nigeria in this case. And then, of course, inner city and rural uh, youth in the United States, rural white youth uh, uh, who come from low-income families, and then inner-city youth who come from largely Hispanic and African-American families, but there are white youth as well, as we've discussed in previous episodes. So that's kind of, what I'm setting the stage of what we want to talk about, but I, I think we'll go wherever uh, our thoughts lead us. Let me let me give a little context to the question about East London. So uh, if most people, I think, in this country at least, would be familiar with uh, the idea of East L.A. as opposed to West L.A., to Los Angeles, of course. And there's this idea that the 10 freeway, which divides, um, is it, am I thinking the 10? Uh, I think it's the 10, yeah, divides uh, Los Angeles right down the middle from downtown L.A., uh, north and south. And... There's this idea that East L.A. is everything east of that divide, and that's where the Watts riots have been. That's where a lot of the impoverished image of Los Angeles uh, comes from. And so when we say inner city, often, even though it's not really that cut and dry, that's sort of the image of where the the majority of of Impoverished might be too strong a word, but but certainly less privileged communities in in that region are are based. And I think the question, Peter, is your understanding of uh, London geography is certainly going to be better than either of ours. Does London have something similar in its in its geography that tends to be considered generally sort of where? the more and less haves are to put? Well, I don't know how we always seem to come about this thing. Um, I think we may have even mentioned it uh, the other day or something in conversation, but um, 
like many other places, there does happen to be this uh, something of a of a north south divide. Uh, there's a smaller kind of west and east one, but um, the the River Thames um, does kind of bisect uh, uh, London to some degree, and there tend or tr- historically there have been uh, the south of the river has been um, more sort of a lower income um, um, a lower income area and so has uh, suffered disproportionately um, uh, any any kind of sort of austerity measures or cuts or, or things of that nature. So, so to give you context, Peter, on why I, I specifically brought this up was apparently the grandchildren of the Cockneys uh, greatly reflect uh, what's going on in inner city schools in the United States. And uh, the only difference between them is not economic, but the race, uh, racial background they come from, where uh, they're largely white in the UK. And, and of course, uh, a large percentage here in the United States are either black or, or Hispanic. And so that's why I brought it up specifically, because I know that's an at-risk population that is very different than the American at-risk population in the inner city, very mm. much like the rural at-risk population in the United States and how they look, which we've discussed in this show previously is really immaterial to the education issue, uh, other than cultural awareness, of course. Okay. Um, let, me, let me jump in and correct myself before we get hate mail, because, uh, you know, it has been. Ten, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the highway that divides east and west LA is 110, not the 10. 110. Um, it, 110. It's the one that runs north and south. The 10 runs east and west. Uh, somebody was going to write a dirty message about that, so I just wanted to correct somebody myself. Somebody still can if they like. <laughs> we'd, lo- we'd love to hear from you. We'll give you the email at the end of it, and you can yeah. tell Charles how wrong he was, and we'd love to get your email. <laughs> Whatever the topic. Anyway, Peter, I I think the real discussion here, instead of defining what at risk means, which I think we've done a pretty decent job of, particularly in previous episodes, is more what do you feel can be done to uh, bring at risk uh, young folks to the level where they can compete to get entrance into university uh, or into trade schools if that's the path they choose to take? And how can we as community members, educators, administrators, uh, parents, what can we do to help these populations um, move forward? Can, can, before we, we, we hit that, can I throw another uh, bit of pepper on this particular? What, what happens if I say no? Well, <laughs> we can cut you off. <laughs> of course you can do that. He Seriously. has his finger on the big red button just waiting to... Uh, no, the what's you mentioned, you know, what can we do to help uh, these? Uh, and again, the terminology sucks. We don't have good terminology for any of this. Oh, we don't. At risk, underprivileged, poor, whatever you want to, you know, re- however you best relate to to the population we're talking about. I'm interested, and again, there's there's sort of three different segments of culture we could be talking about here american and even within that there are so many different elements right. of culture we we could divide but uh the, you know the american the, the british the west african um and and obviously nigeria uh specifically in peter's experience there has been a big shift in the last and mike you can I, i'm going to call it 
15 to 20 years, but maybe it's less than that or more. I'm not sure. And the idea of the virtue of a college education, and I say this because you just mentioned the whether it's a trade school or college, how we help these populations rise to a level where they are qualified um, or at least capable of having those as options to pursue in their education. And I think it's worth taking a minute and really talking about what is sort of the prevailing attitude shift and among, uh, you know, the range of economic status between going to a trade school and pursuing a trade, which right now is a very smart thing to do in America. We don't have people doing it. We not at the large levels. We need those skills desperately. Um, and it's, there's certainly nothing wrong with the good and honest work. Uh, and I think, uh, Mike, you and I have certainly discovered this, uh, having higher levels of degree, depending on where you are in life, doesn't necessarily guarantee you those higher level jobs. Um, as, as we have, you know, found out. I I almost sent you a screenshot of my social security statement that I got here last week where I had three years of zero income, but, but, uh, to your point where, where, you know, I just finished, I was working on and finishing my doctorate and couldn't get a sniff. Uh, and and so that is why I brought up trade school. We we have incredible shortages in welding and ship fitting and pipe fitting plumbing and, plumbing. and all of it. Yes, electricians. Uh, you know, you you've been remodeling your home. You know, it's hard to get people to come out and help do these these things. Uh, and even the more mundane things like bricklaying, and and they're not mundane in that they're not difficult. I'm just saying they're not as sexy. They're not as, as high. Well, they're not as necessarily high level as, skill as as an electrician, right. or, or as high paid. Is probably yes. more more good bricklayers, by the way, are every bit as skilled as anyone else. But my point being, even in the more mundane trades like bricklaying and roofing and and those trades, siding work and and gutters, uh, you know, you struggle to get these folks. And, and the realization hit me. When I heard an interview with a young lady welder who was making over $250,000 a year as a welder in the aerospace industry, mm-hmm. and she was 28 years old, and I, I was thinking on this six-figure income, uh, she may be the exception of the rule, but I think the average welder makes about $90,000 a year in this country right now. So uh, she's not much of an exception after you know 10 years of experience. And I, I was thinking about that in compared to my uh, $50,000 worth of uh, student loans that I had at the end of that doctorate. And, and remember, the military paid for most of my doctorate, which tells you how expensive it is. And uh, my options were going back to teaching or waiting for the right job. And, and as a teacher, I would have made $60,000 $60, a year, $62,000 a year. Yeah. And, and she made three times, three to four times more than I made at, at that salary and had no university education. Now she had an education, it just wasn't university. Well, so and, this 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 goes to this idea. And, and I've had heated debates with people because I do understand the argument that uh, you know, for a lot of people, the opinion is a college education is to attain high level employment. And I think that is a outcome, a, a pursuit of, of a college education. But I, I do feel there's value in in that higher level of education 
that is not, it goes beyond just the pursuit of employment. Of course. Of course. There are some who don't who, who who vehemently disagree with that, and so this starts to go into a level of culture. And the reason I bring this up is because as we struggle with what is the value of this. I think that informs some of the methodology with which we would pursue trying to bring that value down to those who we're trying to encourage um, and and provide help for. And I'm curious, Peter, if you find um, from a more international perspective that uh, that that debate is also alive and strong uh you know, in the UK or, or in a Nigerian sense? Well, um, I think you said, I think you spoke very well when you started off kind of, um, you know, you, you broadened the, uh, the, the topic to look at, look at it from, um, from a larger perspective, sort of suggesting this is a, it's a complex issue. We, the, you know, especially when you're talking about it over um, different sort of, uh, different sort of, geographical spaces different nationalities and, and cultures and stuff the, the the countries themselves the uh, social structures the social nets um are very different um the expectations um the um the, the sort of the carrots and the sticks of uh the system are are very different um from nigeria to the uk to the united states um, you know, going back to just quickly to what, uh, what Mike, you were asking, you know, in a, in a way, what can be done? I think anything that, um, anything that is going to be done, that's going to be done, uh, with any level of success first requires will, willpower. There has to be a, a definite concerted, effort backed by a, a certain level of sort of integrity to tackle the problem, to recognize the problem as, as being something more than just, oh, um, these people bad, or these people are, have knives or something like that, to actually look at, um, to look at the causes and to try and tackle those causes, um, to yield a result that's different tomorrow from what it was yesterday. Um, programs like things like mentoring, uh, things like intervention programs and stuff like that. I mean, as I say them, they're just words. They require structure. They require funding. They require focus. They require reform. Um, tech is, you know, especially over, um, over, for instance, our last two years have been somewhat similar in that we've all had shared experiences of kind of, uh, of kind of lockdown. We have been very much sort of attached to screens. Um, what have we been consuming? What have we, uh, what have we learned? What have we gained out of this time? This is, this is something that could make, um, that could be, a huge net positive if kind of, if harnessed properly for, uh, for the lives of some of these individuals. Um, workshops as well, for instance, are, are things that, um, that could form part of a, a package of, of, of transformative change, but it depends on, it depends on your local government, on your local authority. It depends on your state. It depends on, um, your sort of your, you know, the capacity of your political community to actualize a difference somehow. 
Um, and where, where is it all, where is it all going to? Um, which is kind of what Fred was asking this question of, well, I mean, if we've gotten them out of this position of being at risk is, is the whole point to shove them into sort of tertiary education, because what are they going to come out of? Um, what are they going to come? What are they going to, what are they going to have once they come out of that? The it's glib to, to sort of say, and, and it's just, it's a truism to say that the structures or the opportunities that our parents had in terms of this idea of, you know, you get out, um, you get given a, um, a car or you, you get given a job, sorry, and you have a, you can have a career for 40 years no longer exists. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, for example, in, in Nigeria, when my, uh, when, uh, my parents, were working when they started work. If you started, if you're working in the civil service when you finished university, you would be given a house, you would be given a car, you would be given. Um, you had funds um, by, to tra- by the state. If you're working in the civil service, okay, this okay. as a civil servant, you would have funds to uh, to travel at least tw- twice a year. Um, and this was like this was in the late '60s and the late '70s. Now, nine. I mean, just as really sort of put into context for you, currently, um, university students um, have been out of have been out of university for about five to six months because there's been a strike. Um, there's been a university strike that's you know so all the public universities are closed. When they finish their degree, uh, which may take a year or two longer than it was supposed to take, um, there isn't a job out there for a good 60 to 70% of them that will pay for, that will pay for, that will pay for a house that will enable them to get a mortgage. Um, It's a vastly changed landscape. And I mean, moving away from there, even to somewhere sort of um, more, more local, you have to consider that even for Americans, even for, uh, for the Brits, you have a future where you're staring at um, increased sort of population and lower sort of um, job availability through things like automation, which is going to change the landscape in a vast, uh, in a vast way over the next ten to fifteen years. Um, so it's not just the people who are at risk are increasingly in a way at risk, but. The people who are, who don't think they're at risk um, might find themselves in a much more precarious situation as well. Now, let, let me ask this question, because we're currently in this country, and I can't speak for, for any other, dealing with something that I don't think is ever, it's unprecedented here, which is that, first of all, no matter where you go, there are help wanted signs on every corner. But of course... Most of those help wanted signs are relatively low skilled jobs, you know, the, the waiters and, and cleaners and, and, and basic labor. But not all. I don't think I've met any uh, skilled tradesman who has a company who hasn't said we would love to hire help. We can't find anyone who's willing to work. And those are not necessarily low-level jobs. I mean, they're, they're work-with-your-hands, labor-based jobs, but in some of them are skilled and even may require training. Electricians have to go through a rigorous training in this country and certification. And even if you're just a contractor or whatnot, you still have to be certified. There are certain ex- expectations of, of standard of, of experience and ability. 
but we don't seem to have a population right now that wants to pursue even those jobs, let alone the the entry level ones. Um, and we could definitely get into a long list of reasons why that might be the case. I'm curious, and I know Keith is jumping to jump in here, but I want to just ask this question quickly. In in Nigeria, you're saying though there aren't those jobs available that can support you know, a proper quality of life for a lot of these uh, young people coming out of school, would they be willing to take them if there were? In a survival situation, you'll, you'll take whatever you can get. Um, I say that um, perhaps from a position of, uh, from a slightly removed position, because I haven't been in that sort of survival situation. People will tell me that actually there are jobs, but some of these kids just don't want to do them because they want to make money really quickly and not at a sort of, you know, not, they don't want to grind at that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, maybe there's some truth in that, but at the same time, there is, you know, if you have a, a high population and a, a struggling economy, there will be uh, issues uh, in terms of sort of job creation in the job market. So, um, a, a bit of both, but if you have to sort of, if you have to feed yourself, you have to find something doing, um, uh, remittance, remittances can't perhaps carry, uh, carry just anybody and everybody. Now, am I, I would assume I'm correct in assuming that you don't have the same social safety nets that we would claim we have here. Um, and no. that's before I go into whether or not they're actually all that oh, much very, of a net. I mean, yeah, well, very quickly, you, you basically, it, um, the, the, the social safety net, and this is how people who perhaps uh, aren't working are able to survive, is your safety net is your family. Um, okay. And yeah. just in the same way as you don't have, you don't have the bank that is going to help you sort of actualize your business vision, Um you don't have uh, you don't have the, 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 the sort of the state who is going to come in to sort of protect you should you fall. It is your typically uh, family that will put funds together to launch you out there um, and family that will sort of catch you uh, should you uh, should you fall. Hopefully, I, I, I'm going to jump in here. I, I have two quick points. First one I'm going to throw out real quickly is I have watched as a high school teacher, I've watched young men, particularly who wanted to go in the trades, be talked out of it and sent to college. And generally they've dropped out within a year and gone into the trade they wanted to go in um, originally. Specifically, I, I had a young man who I mentored who wanted to be an auto mechanic. And I watched a school administrator say, well, really you should go to college because you're going to buy your garage and you're going to want to be able to run your garage. All he wanted to do was work on cars. And so there is a push within high schools to send kids to college because 96% uh, college acceptance rate is, is a badge of honor that leads to greater pay for administrators. And, and that's just a cold, hard truth. The, the second thing, and, and I'm going to pivot really hard here, uh, Peter, I have a friend who's from AJ in Lagos and her family scrambled to basically eat. And she is now a professional here in the United States, came over here on a green card. And two points. One, education was everything to that family because they wanted their daughter out of there. 
and for folks, and maybe you could describe the district I'm talking about, by the way, to folks. I've never seen it. I've only heard about it. Number two, when she decided she was going to get her green card and come to the U.S., her family funded her travel to come here and work. So it, it re- reinforces what you just said, where the family is the social safety net. Yeah, that's um, that's a very that's a very common story. Um, I don't have the facts before me, but it um, it's been said a number of times. In fact, interesting that Nigerians are actually Nigerians in the United States are actually one of the highest educated. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, sort of, you know, expat or immigrant sort of communities. One of, one of the highest average incomes amongst social uh, uh, groups in the U.S. Uh, West Indians are the other one. Yeah, and then and then I think uh, 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 Jewish Americans are number three. It is. So, you know, the interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing, of course, though, um, um, the, the the sort of the contrast is, you know, we're talking about sort of trade schools and stuff like that over over here, and this idea of breaking away from the traditional sort of perhaps educational expectations um which uh which would apparently apparently to me these things take these things clearly take time in terms of the societal shifts that perhaps need to happen for uh, the broader kind of professional society to look upon and accept these kinds of things um growing up and you know these, these are things we've discussed before growing up you can talk to a Nigerian and they'll tell you there were three professions of any worth, um, doctors, lawyers, and engineers. And all parents try to essentially shunt their kids into one of these professions. This was what was important. Now we have a surplus of a surplus of lawyers somehow. Um, questions about whether the law itself is being, is being actually followed, but that's a completely different thing. Um, but you know, trade schools are they, they haven't in they haven't sort of crossed over though that idea that it is okay not to go to university. It's okay to follow this slightly sort of more this apprenticeship path or something like that. Um isn't something that has perhaps really crossed over. It is still vitally important to do the conventional thing, perhaps if only for the fact that maybe a degree is worth nothing, but somebody's going to look at you and ask, well, where did you go to school? And if you, you might be a genius, but if you can't tell them somewhere, then just perhaps move on to the next person. Is this? It, it, yeah. It's a true statement. Of course, the most successful people uh, in Western culture, most of them did not complete college, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the guy who started Bezos, is it Bezos who started Amazon? Um you know, they don't, they don't complete college because they have such a vision. They're busy making money before they get out. I have a brother, by the way, who, who was in university, uh, which was a goal as an immigrant family. University was not, not an, mm-hmm. uh, a non-option. You had to go. You had to go. I, I, I bucked the trend by going in the military instead. And um, he, he was in his second year of university and he was doing his internship and he turned to his boss and said, what are you going to pay me when I get out of college? And the salary that they were going to give him was the same salary he was making as an intern. Mm. He said, well, what if I just stay here Uh and don't go back to college? You have a job. And so he retired at 50 with his millions in the bank and and, and now does what he really wants to do, which is, by the way, build houses. And so uh, there is some some truth where these highly motivated folks in Western culture can 
skip the college and make a lot of money. Here's I what realized I would, exception to the rule. This is what I was going to, this is what, this is what I was going to say for all the, the Jeffs and the bills and the, the Steve's out there doing these tech companies and stuff like that. How many people don't we hear about who also thought that they were the next big thing in some way and dropped out of college and we just haven't heard anything from them or about them. Well, I have, I have five siblings and one of them pulled it off. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them completed college within his four years. And uh, the one that's your, your peer, Fred, uh, Charles, and then the others kind of drifted a little bit until they kind of found their, their place. Uh, so, so, you know, anecdotally. Oh, we, we haven't had our, a word from our uh, special uh, host in a while. There's our sponsors. <laughs> Anecdotally, one out of five, Peter. One out of five. Okay, so you know the other thing, or the 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 the, the sort of the second part to the, the thing I was, you know, what I was saying about um, old careers or expected conventional careers is um, lawyer, engineer, doctor changed over the years to now accept um, computer scientist, to now accept. Um, you know, um, technician, uh, dental technician, or, you know, it broadened out into other fields. How are you going to tell somebody to, that they should, and perhaps is it, is there a question about the nature of work and living and lifestyle itself? How are you going to tell somebody that they should spend three, four years in, in a university? In this country, something which could set you back tens of thousands of dollars in terms of, uh, in terms of loans. No, no, no. When a there are people, there are people making money playing video games. There are people making money vlogging, or just like you said, there are people you know who are able to sort of sustain themselves doing something radically, radically different, or just doing a vocational kind of thing. Um, well, you you touch on something that's interesting and. You know, making it big uh, and and being wealthy in and of itself has probably always been something. You know, since society started, you wanted to be the the, the fat cat, so to speak. Um, and if you if somebody else was and you weren't, you envied that person in some fashion. I don't know about that. Just to stop you, I I don't know about because I think for a lot of our history, most people have actually been really content just to get to the next day or the end of the month without well, something. You know, you're not wrong about that. I uh, but I think that for if you are aware of the difference between you're just trying to survive status as opposed to somebody who's riding a very nice wave and you can see that person over there, there is usually some sense of I'd like to be in their shoes um, in some fashion. And. You know that that's not nothing to criticize or, or or dismiss. I think there's something that that, and I, I could be wrong about this. It's it's just a question I have. The virtue of not just making an honest living, or a living period, whether it's honest or not, but some sense of wanting to contribute to society as well in the process. So whether that's through art. And, and, and really doing something that's profound and, and, cold, and, and, and life changing for, for a culture or being a doctor, not just because I want most people didn't grow up saying I want to be a doctor because I want to be rich. 
They, mm-hmm. the, it was, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people or a police officer to help people or, or whatever. At least that's going back to my childhood. I don't know what it is today. But this idea of I want to fame maybe was always for its own purposes. I want to be a movie star. I, I don't know if it was because I want to be a great actor and move people as opposed to be rich and famous. I don't know. Um, but as opposed to what you mentioned now, where why should I work hard to make other people money um, in, in a career that may or may not have any kind of retirement to expect and so forth, as opposed to go uh, do be an Instagram star? Um, where I can do what I want, uh, snap some pictures and create some content that really, let's be honest, is not contributing to the well-being of society. That's a judgment call on my part, but I don't think it is. Uh, and But I could be rich and famous just like that and never have to deal with all this other unpleasant hard work. I, I Am I wrong that that seems to be a more recent you know, trend, why is it that nobody wants to start with jobs anymore that were starter jobs? You know, we usually didn't have a problem finding people who were on summer break to wait tables and and do these jobs. And now, now forget it. I think and on, we experienced mind. that, by the way, Peter, when we were up in New England, uh, northern New England, and uh, every place we went said they were desperate for help. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to mention that. Yeah, no, but I want to ask what, I mean, it's, 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 the, the, these three words have been at least uh, over, over across the other side of the, the pond, quote unquote, have been, have, have been very sorts of, have echoed and echoed this, uh, this summer season. Cost of living, four mm. words, cost of living crisis. The idea that people are people are hemmed in people are at the margins um people what they receive what they take home at the end of the day is not enough to get them through inflation has been doing acrobatics recently so against that kind of backdrop what are, what's the point in well people are asking you know what you know well. these, what was an entry job that paid you over the summer something that you could you know, have a, a decent sort of, you know, summer holiday or something, and you could perhaps even save a little something 20 years ago, doesn't appear to be the same thing. The job looks the same, but it's not the same for all intents and purposes, apparently. Well, it's a lifestyle. But... Right. Mm-hmm. Well, he, you're. The key point, though, this has only only happened since we've allowed all these student loans where kids didn't have to hustle in the summer to make the money to go to college. When I came up, you went to work in the summer so you could save for college. It it was just a fact, uh, particularly. Right. 
Well, and wow. that's this uh, because somebody on that team is going to play in the major leagues, right? And, and so that's kind of the the way we've gone. And what I find interesting with all of this is the top ten highest paid occupations in the United States. I, I pulled this list up according to the. Uh, uh, this is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Peter, this is your 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 family told you truth. Mm. Doctors and surgeons, number one. Dentists, number two. Those are the two highest occupations in the United States. I'm going to skip number three for a moment. Number four, nurse practitioners. Number nine is physicists. That's not really a medical doctor. Podiatrists are number 10. So four of the top 10 highest paid occupations in the United States are physicians. Uh, number three is chief executives, which we all know what it takes to get there. Uh, number five, airline pilots, which is a military career extension generally as a rule. You, you start in the military and then you go to fly for, for others. The computer guys are sitting at number six and the engineers and architectural folks are sitting at number seven. If you want to be a lawyer and you want to make money, you got to become a judge. And then I mentioned physicists at number nine. But all of those are college required occupations. All of those are college required occupations that I just mentioned. Yeah, I looked at I looked at a bigger list uh, of the top fifty. You start to see the trades pop in in like that thirty five to fifty range. But see, uh, Instagram star wasn't on that list at all. I noticed. No, no, nor was nor was movie star. This goes back to our last episode Rock where I said most star. Of never heard. Yeah, um, um, you know. But but I wonder, and and the, I'm sure there's a survey out there somewhere. I haven't found it, but I wonder if we really looked at the percentage, what is the breakdown of in the psychology of youth today? Forget about economic status, frankly, because I don't know that that matters so much in the world of the Internet the way it is. We see all sorts of things and say, OK, um, I I why like Peter suggesting, why would I flip burgers and it's not even going to pay my rent um, when I could instead live with mom and dad a little bit longer and, you know, try and make this happen. And I don't know that that is the pervasive attitude, but it is an attitude out there. It is. It is. And, you know, going back to your original question, how do you, you know, all of those top 10 uh, uh, incomes you just mentioned are all still a lot of school, a lot of hard work, a lot of good training and a lot of debt for most of those uh uh, training processes when you come out of it. And I, but they're all contributing in some oh, yeah. fashion. They're all contributing to the fabric of a forward moving society. They're not self-serving jobs in, in, in and of themselves like Instagram star. So I wonder if there is to answer your question about how do we, um, help if there is need, a need to get back to teaching the virtue of contributing career paths in some fashion and and some of those grassroots levels that you you still kind of have to start at. Um, I think that was there was something interesting in that um, all of those all of those professions were kind of um, there seemed to be a, an average um sort of thing like perhaps the average doctor the average um uh podiatrist which did come in at number 10 uh the average sort of nurse that that sort of weighted average raised them to that um to that place on the list perhaps there was one that kind of stuck out though which is ceo <laughs> um and i'm not 
convinced, I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't know if it's the average CEO that has raised it to that position or if it is the overall pay packet of certain, of maybe the top 100 CEOs that has it, brought it. Fortune five. I think it's the Fortune 500 CEOs right. who has, are demanding, who are commanding, they are commanding multi-million dollar packages because right. there's only 500 of them in the world that can that can run these super corporations that are out there you know the the apples and the and the microsofts and 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 those uh, you know that's a real niche market i think your point is is valid where those guys make 32 million dollars and the ceo of uh, bug tussle industries is making uh 100,000 dollars maybe right yeah but it drives it up yeah but again so this is and this comes back to you know there's a radio discussion i i heard the other day sort of thing you know uh, there will be help wanted signs at maybe amazon are looking for uh, are looking for sort of more more drivers more factory workers and everything and the disparity between what the ceo is getting and what that person on the factory floor is getting is is in no way encouraging. And in truth, I would rather, perhaps some of these companies should have, you know, I would rather a thousand Instagram stars rather than some of these CEOs. It's true because in terms of the actual sort of, the actual impact or the actual sort of the level of, um, of, of equity and balance and actual kind of um, almost... Uh, a, a decent wage, a decent uh, living being afforded uh, or offered, there is, it, it's, it's massively, it's massively unbalanced in a certain way. Well, culturally also, and I keep using that word, but to me, it's, it's a major player in, in these conversations. The idea of the, what is the path to CEO has shifted drastically as well. Time was you started in, you know, at the company down in the mailroom and, you know, the, the as the legend goes, you worked your way up to a more regular and further and to a management and gradually at the end of a career, you got near the top of the company. That's actually how Jack Welch did it. That was exactly who I was thinking about. Jack there Welch is- started low and he actually blew up a factory. There, there's a story he blew he there was a no one got hurt no one was in there but he messed up something and the factory blew up and the current ceo at the time didn't yell at him didn't mandate you know he said how do we learn from this it was, it was a, he used it as a teachable moment because like you made a mistake but like you're a brilliant person you know what you're doing well, he recognized the value of the you, you have yeah. value and, and that's and he i listen wonder to if that would happen today him. yeah <laughs> but, but that's very few ceos do that very these days but he was one that, that yeah. came up like that well no, it, I, yeah. I i don't know that that's and keith i'm going to challenge you on this and, and i'm not going to mention the company i work for but but i know a lot about our ceo and he's very much like jack welch jack welch was a chemical engineer by the way when he started off with uh his, his company him. and and the ceo of my company is an electrical engineer uh and, and these guys started off and i know engineers are high paid positions that they're, they're in that top 25 list by the way all all these engineers are in the top 25 list uh so that goes back again to peter physician lawyer or 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 engineer uh, i came from an engineering family by the way everybody's supposed to be an engineer but these a lot of these high paid big industry jack welch general electric type ceos do start off in en- as engineers and, and then move their way up because they realize the money is to be made on the sales side of 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 the house and, and same thing with the the, the, the CEO of my company. Uh, not only did he start off as an engineer, he was an engineer in India. 
So, so, so ponder on that for a moment. And now he's CEO of a fortune 100 company to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, and so uh, it, it, it is the, there, the, you know, it goes back to the earlier point that, that Charles made. There is something to be said for that college education, as much as I want to push particularly boys into the trades uh, because I've seen so many boys and I, I will be, I will say this up front. Well, I guess we're towards the end of the episode, but I will say this. My propensity to push young men towards the trades is because I've seen way, way, way too many young men go to college and they don't have the focus of a Charles. They don't have a focus of my brother, Joe, and, and they go to college and within a year or two, they have forty, fifty thousand dollars in debt and they've left school. And, and now they're going to work uh, for public works, picking up garbage at the dump uh, and can't pay their student loans. Right. Well, um, I'm a firm believer that most people should take a year or two off before going to college. Oh, I agree with that. Because people just go straight to college because it's to- what they're told to do. I mean, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. That I, I've changed careers a thousand times. You don't know what you want to do at 17, 18. You don't know who you are. You don't haven't lived the world yet. But you're just you're forced to go make a decision about the rest of your life. And I was actually thinking about this early in the episode. You're talking about the trades. I remember back in eighth grade because we had a technical high school in our region. And you had to make the choice in eighth grade if you wanted to go to technical high school or the regular high school. Wow. In eighth grade. Well, well that's I don't more have of the, the European. And there was one meeting for that. This person came in one time yeah. to talk about it in a class. I don't have the mental no, capacity in eighth mm-hmm. grade to decide that. So they decided, they decided when you're 11 in Germany, by the way. So so it is very European to now do that. Now, you have, is, as I understand it, and I don't know if it's still that, that, that system over there, but I know that there was a, a provision put that if at any point you wanted to switch tracks, you could test over into a more okay. academic thing. So you weren't permanently stuck. And it's interesting because in some ways, I think young, there, are, there are young people who could really use that level of guidance. In other ways, I think of myself, I was academically very average in high school. Um, I worked hard and, and certainly in the arts, I, I excelled. But in general academics, I was at the line, maybe even what for by my standards, slightly below it. Uh, relative to my friends that were all in the advanced placement, this and that. In college, I did extremely well. And I would hate to think that I would have not ever really had the opportunity because of the the level of student I was in, in high school or, or so forth. So that's hard. But it's interesting because it, it, I agree with Keith. I, it, there are exceptions, of course. But if I was king of the world and everybody knew that I was right, uh, then I would I think there would be an incredible value in having a service year, so to speak. And it could be military, but it doesn't have to be. There could be all kinds of different ways that you could take time and and do some form of service to your country or whatever, uh, your community, um, that I think would be, inc- I know for me, it would have been incredibly valuable because while I was a hard worker, I think a lot of that work was in spinning my wheels uh, in school, early on at least. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just doing what I knew I could do because I didn't have any other inspiration to do anything uh, professionally to go after. And in hindsight, and now it's far too late, I can think of all kinds of opportunities 
that if I had had some some period of time for guidance and discovery that uh, could have taken very – of course, I wouldn't be sitting here with you lovely people today if that had happened. But I would like – I would imagine I'm not alone in, in being potentially able to benefit from something like that. It's not necessarily what's going to happen, but I think it would be this idea that you have to go straight into college or straight into this or straight into that – even though there's sometimes maybe financial and economic reasons why it's probably prudent, um, sometimes probably is not the best way to serve. Uh, It's not. And I'm speaking as a guy who's had four very distinct careers in my life, in my, you know, now in my fifties. And uh, it, it is, it is, it is not particularly well suited for folks like me who drift from thing to thing. You know, I was joking before we started recording how I flipped from, from whatever interests me to whatever interests me and, and try to learn everything I can about it and then move on to the next thing. And, and so folks like me are not well served by this very rigid uh, structure that we built that you go to high school. And if you go to the academic, uh, the way they call them college prep classes, then you go to university. And, and, you know, as a boy of 18, or I would have been 17 starting college, who has the, compared to his female peers, has the mental age of about a 12 year old girl. College was not the place for me. The military worked out just fine for me. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, by the way, is I don't know if it's still true, but in Germany, you had two years of mandatory service. Uh, a lot of those folks went in the military. And we we always talk about how they have free college in Germany. Well, you have free college if you go in the military in the U.S. too. So uh, if, if, you know, if we did do this two-year mandatory service model, uh, part of that money would then go towards a college education if that's what you later wanted to do. What was what was the range of service options? Was it just for military? Did they have well, other things? Well, I think most did? of the boys were pushed into the military or the men were pushed in the military, but there were other options. You didn't have to go in the military. Uh, even in my like my mother's generation, you didn't have to go to the military. You could go into the equivalent of uh, uh, like a the Peace, Peace Corps. Corps yeah, 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 yeah. One of those organizations. Uh, but the point being that you did your two years of service and college is paid and, and, and life is wonderful. Uh, if you figured out what you wanted to do in those two years. The problem was that I have, and I think I'm not the only one. A lot of us don't know what we want to be when we grow up right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And and so, uh, and, and, you know, I I was listening to Peter earlier talking about living wage and those things. Why are immigrants doing it and and native born folks are not? Why is it that my roofer who came and put a roof on my house this past spring tells me I can't hire anybody who's a native born American, I, I, I'm hiring Hispanics who are immigrants. But this goes are. back to culture. I, I this goes so. back to the, the, the way we have through direct conversation and, and, and counsel or miscounsel, uh, the, what we see on TV and on Instagram and all these other things, there is a value two parts. One, there is a value of the contributing career that I think has lost uh, a certain amount of meat. But as Peter mentioned, you also have to look at, uh, I think, Mike, you're a great example. And and, and I'm going to say something and, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong. If you're, you are a man or is a passionate educator, you were talented, you were trained, and you were effective as a teacher. If you had been making $250,000 a year, would you have left that industry? No, no. Because I could double my salary going into what I do now in corporate America, teaching, but not not kiddos, 
Uh, no, I wouldn't have left. I, I wouldn't have left if I could have made a hundred thousand. Let's be real honest. So when I you when you make a statement like I don't know what I want to be today, and I I'm with you there. I understand exactly what you're saying, both in jest and seriously. I think part of the reason we find ourselves in those positions is because the things that we have been and the things that we have directly attainable to us frequently are not going to put bread on the table at a level that, as Peter mentions, is a living and and successful wage. Well, right. and there's also that thing when you hit that big 5-0 or that 4-0 or 4-5, sure. you know you've got to start saving for your retirement now. And so there and limitations are starting to be, or not it's starting, yeah. they've well started to accumulate on options. And you have to grab Tradition, those big, traditional those, options, at least. Right, right. And you have to grab those big salaries and big is relative to whatever your occupation but, is. Uh, if you're a social worker, now you become a a supervisor see, of social workers and you make 60000 instead yeah. of 40000 a year. I, I just thought. But, but, go ahead. Yeah. Please. No, I just thought, you know, um, it's it's difficult sometimes to kind of um, to overcome um, and to look beyond the the strong resonance and effects of culture and, and history and this sort of mindset. You have at the beginning to middle of last century, a lot and a lot of immigrants coming into America. A lot of these people wouldn't have necessarily gone to university or their parents wouldn't have gone to university. There were a lot of first generation university mm-hmm. students around that time in the century, the sort of the perhaps the 50s to like the 70s, with a lot of cultural, different cultural groups as well. You have that added competition of, well, we're not going to be like them and not go to university. You're damn well going to go to university. So there was a great sort of uptake in this idea of the university route is the way to do it. Everything else is just ad hoc and improvised kind of thing. Um, and I feel perhaps it's now we've started to come to the, the 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 sort of the tail end, perhaps, of this idea. And we started to realize that, well, the structures that created that dynamic are no longer supporting it in the same way that they were. And, you know, now it's time to even even the sort of even the sort of the the social environment, everything is much faster. Developments um, come out much more rapidly. So the idea of going and sort of studying the textbook um, in in rote fashion and then repeating and regurgitating that on the exam is is becoming passe. It, the idea now or going forwards has to be a, almost a constant learning and uh, a willingness to sort of to learn new skills that you can kind of bolt on to to what you already have. And I know uh, whether this was the reason uh, or just happened to be a, a sort of, you know, an additional sort of cause. But I know, uh, Fred, that you went back to, to study again and you went back to get new, you went back to do a, some, some measure of a degree, but you actually retrained in a completely different thing from what you originally started out in. Well, uh, not exactly. The answer is yes on one hand, but I was looking to deepen my uh, marketability and skills within still the same career. Um, As an administrator of the arts, I thought having 
a, a higher level degree and training in communication and marketing would help to further mm-hmm. that still career in arts. Uh, when I when I went back within that, now has it worked? Uh, Mike, but- <laughs> he doubled down. He doubled down on the college. Talk to him, Mike. Talk to him. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna real quick because you made another. The first half of your point really resonated with me, Peter. And that is, we need to understand, and I've had this discussion with, uh, I was sitting in a room with an attorney, a physician, uh, and and a, a physicist, and a couple other uh, PhD types, and we were just talking about PhD programs. And the purpose of a PhD program is not to give you a defined skill set in that you're going to learn all this information and be able to regurgitate it. What a PhD or a, a doctorate of any kind is doing is teaching you a way of thinking about things. And, and synthesizing information and then responding to that information you have, uh, you know, a physician assesses your, 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 uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for your symptoms and, and prescribes a treatment for you. A lawyer takes a look at your situation and prescribes a defense for you, or, or, or if you're on the other side, the other side, uh, an education doctor takes a series of, uh, takes a look at a classroom and, and, and tells a teacher, this is the way you need to deliver this material. And it really is about thinking, assessing information and thinking. I think that that has been pushed up too high. That, that thinking needs to drop probably to high school, maybe. Hmm. And, and I find it disturbing that we get kids that come out of high school and They'll say something you say, and you're thinking, I, I don't say it because I don't want to be that troll, but in the back of my mind, I'm going, you do realize that's a logical fallacy, right? Is it because learning, <laughs> so, almost uh, learning you know, has been attached it, it, completely to thinking rather than doing, which is perhaps, right. would you suggest that? Right, right. So anyway, I, I know we're just about out of time. Well, because but, but uh, There are two things you, I want to say before we do please. run out of the clock here. And there are two things. One, on the topic of immigration and education in America. There has been an interesting shift in the idea, and, and I think maybe it's come back and forth a couple different times. I don't know where we are right now, but time was, and, and I'll, I'm going to use India as an example. If, you, if they had the means, a lot of times families would send their, their uh, of-age children to America to get the higher-level education because we're still considered to have some of the best universities and colleges in the world. Come here, gather those skills, and then come go back to where they were from to bring those skills back into uh, their native land and service. And... I, I know that's certainly exactly what happened in many cases, but I also wonder at some point, because we now look at, you know, these populations from these cultures and, and countries are now uh, holding some of the X and Y ranked careers and salaries in the country. To what extent did realizing the quality of life over here at a certain point in, in that young person's uh, development, they decide not to go back? Um, I, think it I think it happens a lot. Yeah. I think it happens a lot. And so and, I don't and, have statistics on that, but I, I think that's an interesting thing just for talking about culture of education and immigration and so forth to take into consideration um, when we look at the motivation for higher level uh, uh, education. The other thing that I think is worth considering, and this is uh, 
you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be answered. But I started at the top of the show saying that I have differed from people who have taken a, a hard line on the sole purpose for a college education is to pursue a career, uh, a higher paying career. And, and I think that's definitely a legitimate purpose, but it doesn't explain the 80 year old woman who has finally gotten her degree. And, 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 and I read about a 90 year old man who finally got his doctorate, not because he's starting a new career, but I, I think there is something to be said for those to whom it would apply about honoring the idea that an education, wherever you may get it from, but a higher level of education, uh, which can still happen in a library with determination, doesn't have to come with a degree, but is a, for at least some, and, and maybe not enough, a valued way of enriching one's person, their, their thinking, their life, their, their level of, of uh, experience. And for, you know, that should be something teacher uh, students are given as an understanding as well. Again, I think it was uh, uh, Goodwill Hunting had the greatest line. You know, you could uh, drop, you know, $100,000 at Harvard on an education you could have gotten for four and a half dollars in late fees at the library. Well, yeah, for that person, that probably is true. But for a lot of us, the classroom actually does have some some value. And Education is definitely a career-based uh, pursuit, whether it's in the trades or at the higher levels, but it's also a way to enrich yourself as a person, and I think that should not be ignored. Education provides a structure for folks to learn who wouldn't learn, may not learn uh, in other methods. Uh, there, there is something to be said for the self-educated uh, uh, experts, and there are a lot of them, and, and we point to them, but again, they're the exception, not the rule. Sure. Sure. You know, if, if if we talk about John Glenn, who was self-educated, or Henry Ford, or Mark Twain, or J.D. Rockefeller, uh, I was looking at a list of who all self-educated here. Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln never went to school. You you know that. He read the law to become an attorney. Frederick Douglass. Um, yep. Uh, uh, Larry Ellison. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm looking at the list of, of self-educated experts was what I looked for. Uh, that that does exist, and, and we're not discouraging that on this show. I, those, there there are other ways to get an education. And by the way, you can get a college degree. I, I clepped out my first two years of college because of my self education. Clep is a test you take where you challenge your your basics in college, and uh, if you pass, you'll get the credit. Most hmm. universities will accept those those credits. Uh, some of those credits. I clepped out the first two years of college just because of all the books I'd written in my life when I did go back to school in in my thirties, by the way. So uh, anyway, I, I I would I would love to. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up because Engineer Keith has family commitments he has to go to, and if we keep him here, he's going to have a fit with us. So uh, anyway, um, I, I want to thank all three of you for this wonderful conversation. If you, if you want to spin me up, get me talking about education. Uh, if you called me after the show, we'd have a, another conversation that would go the whole drive back. But I have a meeting here in a little bit. Um, but I did, I did want to say the answer to last week's trivia question was Blade Runner. So if you didn't send us the answer, you don't get the amazing prize. Uh, I want to thank Peter for being here with us today. Thank you. Uh, I really enjoy our conversations uh, regarding education and film and anything else we may be discussing. Uh, Charles, I want to thank you again for just, you're, you're the anchor. You're the guy who keeps us on track. 
and, and doesn't let me go too far down those rabbit holes. Uh, you only let me get about six, eight feet in before you pull me back out. So, oh, and I enjoy and, every inch of it. <laughs> and, and, and of oh, course, engineer Keith, who's, <laughs> engineer Keith, who's always in the background and, and, and jumps in with such so many cogent points and, and cogent uh, uh, observations about, about the topic at hand. So I, I want to thank all of you and just want to say, I'm going to, I'm going to repeat something I've said in previous shows. If you're one of our listeners, I'm going to beg you, pretend you see me on my knees, beg you to start attending school board meetings, get involved with the educational processes in your community, get involved with encouraging young men and women to go on the trades. If that's something you're passionate about, please, please, please get engaged. School board meetings have five people, the same five people walk into them with the same positions. We need you in those meetings, whether you're coming from the left, the right, or the center, I don't care. Get involved with education, hold your school administrators accountable. In the United States, we spend almost $17,000 per student a year. We are the highest funded schools in the world and you're not getting value for your tax dollars demand they give you value for your tax dollars and that's my final word so i'll pass it on to peter i think oh um thank you thank you very much it's been it's been lovely to be uh, it's been lovely to be over um i just wanted to say i think um we we started the conversation with um or we spoke about you know uh, the the 10 most sort of uh, lucrative positions or jobs uh, uh, positions in perhaps in the United States, um, and we started the conversation with people who are at risk. Um, and the truth is, of course, that people who are at risk are very unlikely to make it into those positions because of the precarious and disadvantaged nature of uh, of where they are. Um, but it, so it's I think it's vitally important to sort of to consider um, how and why um it's it's essentially it's essential that we invest in in education that we invest in learning and we recognize that those two things aren't the same but that those two things are um of great importance and uh, very complementary um it, it isn't for ourselves and for you know, for our for our communities, for our families, for 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 society as a whole. Um, in terms of when it comes to cohesion, uh, stability, uh, resilience, and creativity, there is nothing so um, so transformative um, and so uh, that pays such returns as learning and education. And whatever we can do for ourselves, and whatever we can indeed, whatever we can do for um, for society at large, or to push things in a uh, in a more in a more progressive manner that yields better results, um, works for all of us, um, and should be something to we pursue. I can't add to that. No. <laughs> so you have a list of folks we're supposed to thank. I, I thanked one of them, but would you mind thanking the others for us, please, Well, Charles? first of all, uh, Peter, thank you again. This is uh, two episodes in a row. You've been our first guest uh, star, absolute star. Uh, he didn't, ladies and gentlemen, he didn't think he'd have anything to contribute, but uh, I hope you'll <laughs> all agree that uh, that was certainly not true. Okay. And uh, we really appreciate you being here. 
this uh, this podcast is recorded and produced here at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, the School of Communication and the Arts, and Dr. Jim Kastengar, great, uh, wonderful support for our work here. Um, and our efforts, our engineer, editor, contributor, and occasional co-host, uh, Keith Zadroyevi, the great professor on the other side of the glass. Thank you so much for all that you do. Um, the Lazarus Trio, who brings us in and out with the wonderful music, Carl Groves and Mike Koniger, uh, who lead that wonderful ensemble. And of course, my co-host, the esteemed, the one, the only, Dr. Mike Koniger. Thank you for being here. And the amazing Charles Frederick Sacrese, who who is the glue that binds us together. I want everyone to go out, do great things, and be kind to each other. And remember, Talk- if you like this show, if you hate this show, if you'd like to burn this show to the ground, tell us about it. Civil Discourse TNSS at gmail.com. That's this is not a safe space at gmail.com. Send us your there notes. Uh, uh, go on and, and subscribe to the uh, podcast smash that like button give us five stars do whatever you got to do because it is for you that we are here and it's because of you that we are continuing so we thank you for tuning in and hope you'll be with us next week hey Charles we have a quick addendum that we need to add to this show because our, our good friend Peter who everyone just heard uh, wants to fact check themselves. Isn't it amazing? Wouldn't it just be a better world if everyone fact checked themselves? I just, I feel like the level of legitimacy that I can go to sleep tonight and feel good about myself is so much better now. Thank it you, is. Peter. Thank you, Peter. Peter's a good example for all of us. So here, here's what he sent us, and, and I want to go ahead and I'm going to read it with the best feeling I can. Uh, so what Peter said, in the spirit of learning and education, uh, he needed to clarify a previous statement. On deeper fat check, it is worth noting that the Nigerian diaspora in the United States were, as of 2018, not the highest earning immigrant group or that with an average highest level of education. And and to add to Peter, I think I said that Japanese uh, Americans and West Indians were the highest and they don't appear at the top of that list either. So uh, Peter does go on to say with a national uh, above national average median household income of $62,000 a year and at over 55% of a bachelor's degree or higher, they are one of the most successful immigrant groups in the country, but not the first in class. And so while I've been chitter chatting, you've been looking at the facts. So what are the facts? So according to Pew Research, and of course this is always a fluctuating set of variables, but I'm gonna just go with the top four right now. Um, As of this year, I I, I suppose, the, uh, no, I'm sorry, as of 2018, apologies. As of 2018, so this could have already shifted, who knows. Uh, the number one group uh, of immigrants success, based, rated on success is Indian, with an average income of around 132,000. Taiwanese come in at number two, at 102,000. Uh, the Australians and the Filipinos are almost neck and neck at around 100,000 or so on average. So, with that, bucket of bolts. Well, there's your correction, folks. And if we forget something, miss something, or misstate something, never hesitate to reach us out to us and let us know at civildiscoursetnss at gmail.com. So never let it be said we don't want to hear uh, where we went off the rails. So <laughs> thank you, Peter, for that. And, and we appreciate you being on our last show. We're going to meet you on the next one.
I surrender.